0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The name Sir Sterling Moss is synonymous with Formula One, motorsports and sports in general. Much like the names and Senna, Graham Hill, Barry Sheen and nowadays Lewis Hamilton, Moss was known by everybody. Mr. Motor Racing was a true household name. Alarmingly quick, tremendously versatile and patriotically English, Sir Sterling passed away at the age of 90 on Easter Sunday. He leaves behind a huge legacy in touring car racing, sports car racing, even rallying, and of course Formula One, where he won almost a quarter of all Grand Prix he started, and 24 podium finishes from 66 starts marks an impressive hit rate of 36%. Generally regarded as the finest Grand Prix driver never to win the World Championship, Moss finished runner-up four times and was third on a further three occasions. He competed in the British Saloon Car Championship, the Alpine Rally, the Sebring 12 Hours and the Le Mans 24 Hours. In 1955, driving for Mercedes, he won the British Grand Prix at Aintree to become the first Briton to win his home event. And in 1957, he did it again in the Vanwall to become the first British driver to win the British Grand Prix in a British car. And of course there were other standout wins like at the infamous Nordschleife in Germany and that 1961 Monaco Grand Prix when over 100 laps and almost 3 hours of racing Moss's privately entered Lotus run by Rob Walker held off the shark-nosed Ferraris of Richie Ginther and Phil Hill and there was the gesture which in 1958 saw Moss back his friend and title rival Mike Hawthorne, meaning the latter was reinstated from a disqualification at the Portuguese Grand Prix, handed back his second place and would eventually go on to beat Moss to the World Championship. Generally regarded as Sir Sterling's greatest achievement was his frighteningly fast victory in the 1955 Miglia the 1,000-mile road race across Italy. Alongside journalist Dennis Jenkinson as his co-driver, Moss beat his idol, Juan Manuel Fangio. Watching roadside that day was a 15-year-old Italian boy just one month before he and his family up sticks and emigrated to the United States of America. Injected with enthusiasm and passion by Moss, Fangio and another former F1 world champion, Alberto Ascari, who he watched at Monza, Mario Andretti would go on to become the only driver in history to win the Indianapolis 500, the Daytona 500 and the Formula One World Championship, which he did with Colin Chapman's Lotus in 1978. I'm Greg Haynes and this week the Eurosport Full Throttle Podcast trades in two wheels for four as we discuss one legend with another. Sit back then and enjoy a conversation with Mario Andretti who is on the line from his office in Pennsylvania, a true gentleman and a motor racing hero. Mario, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Obviously, sad times, but a great man, and it's a great time to reflect on Sir Sterling's life and achievements, isn't it?
1: Yes, no question. Um, I think, uh, here again, uh, uh, we knew that he's been ill for uh, a couple of years now, where he he dropped out of sight, so to speak, and you know, he retreated uh, he, he from, um, you know, the public appearances and all that, That, uh, but again, uh, you know, I kept in touch uh, with Susie, uh, you know, probably maybe once a month or so, and uh, she sort of kept me abreast of things, and we you know, chatted, because Susie had a, a very nice relationship with my wife Diane, you know, so we had that uh, sort of conversation, and And again, a big shock, you know, uh, on Sunday morning when uh, I learned about his passing again. It's like, you know, family member, you can never prepare for it. And uh, uh, it was tough, you know, someone bigger than life like him, you know, uh, individuals like that should never die. But he will never die in our hearts, for sure.
0: Yeah, and especially during these strange times anyway, everything seems a bit surreal, doesn't it, at the moment? But, of course, you had the great fortune in actually seeing Sterling in the millimilia in 1955.
1: Indeed. Yes. Uh, actually that was, the uh, I had, uh, you know, as a teenager, my brother Aldo and I, uh, we were just following, uh, motorsports, you know, while still, you know, living in our own country and in, in Italy. And, and as you could see the popularity of formula one with, the Ferrari Maserati, uh Ferromeo being involved and then uh, then of course Mercedes uh entering there in fifty four and cleaning house everywhere with uh, uh Sterling and uh yes. and of course Fonjo. Uh but the Mille Miglia was the first race that uh, you know, we got uh, to, to to be very close to uh, uh when we uh we went to the uh Pass, the Futa Pass to watch and I remember him uh, flying by uh, with uh, Dennis Jenkinson next to him, which was, um, you know, even then was unusual to see. But uh, here he goes, and he wins that race. Uh, And he he was part of that group of of drivers of that era that uh, uh, inspired me tremendously. And um, just to go on, I was later on, uh, once I was, you know, more involved in the international scene, that... uh, I got to meet him, and finally, you know, we were in Argentina, I think it was, I think it might have been 1977, Uh, and it was he and and, and Fanjo together, and uh, we just uh, sort of uh, uh, got involved in a conversation, and they were surprised at how much I knew about their careers, because they they kept saying well, you know some of the contemporaries at the moment you know they don't really know what we're all about as much as you do and uh i said oh yes i said i i know probably i probably remember more uh than you do you know so we really engaged and it was yeah. really nice actually because after that every time we met you know we had something to say yeah uh, and of course sterling was forever present in all the events uh you know so many events obviously uh, not just the motor races, but the classic events, and uh, uh, he stayed close to the sport forever. You know, he, uh, uh, even after his accident, you know, he uh, he was forever present, and um, and everybody always revered him, and and rightfully so.
0: Yes, and it seems like a strange irony in some ways, does not it, that he passed away on the Easter weekend and he had his accident at Goodwood in 1962 on the Easter weekend as well. I know. But were you quite starstruck, Mario, when you first met him? (laughs) I suppose as many people must be when they meet you now. You must have been quite starstruck to meet Sir Sterling.
1: Oh, I, I, it was, uh, to me, it was uh, incredible. I just had to pinch myself, you know, to have the opportunity to speak with him because... uh, (laughs) You know, individuals like Kim and Fonja were, like, bigger than God, you know, when I was uh, uh, a young teenager, you know, just uh, totally, uh, you know, infatuated with the sport. And, um, and again, you know, to finally uh, have a really conversation, in fact, and have someone like that even notice me and knowing that I exist, you know, was, was yes. huge. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Individuals like that are with you forever. You know, um, uh, they inspire me uh, uh, at the beginning and I, I remain that way with great respect and admiration, of course.
0: It's interesting you use the word respect there as well, Mario, because is that something you think has changed in recent years, I suppose, with the increased safety as well? Has that certain level of respect that the competitors had for one another waned to an extent now?
1: Well... I don't know, I think that uh, that part is still there, but uh, uh, you know the human element uh, is is still pretty much the same times have changed, situations change, but uh, um, you know I think the respect among drivers is still alive and well in my opinion, the ones that uh, deserve it get it and uh, and with him he was uh, he was so aggressive, but very correct. I mean, uh, uh, even, uh, you know, what happened with uh, when, when he went to bat for, for Mike Hawthorne, you know, that uh, potentially had a violation, and, uh, you know, by, I think, reversing or something on track, and uh, he could have been uh, disqualified instead uh, by, uh, and Sterling apparently went to bat for him, they reinstated him, and then Sterling uh, loses the championship to him by one point, I think, yeah. you know? so... Uh, he was that kind of a guy, you know, he was, uh, uh again, like, uh, not just like, but respected by everyone because he was, he was correct.
0: Yeah. And he really believed in certain things, didn't he? One of them, of course, was racing mostly British machines. And even when he had to enter a Maserati that time, he painted it British racing green, didn't he? Um, he was Mr. Motor Racing, wasn't he? And Mr. British Motor Racing as well at that.
1: Oh yes. He was very loyal. You know, very loyal to his country and uh, to, to his colors for sure, and that that to some degree might have, might have worked, maybe even against yes. him at times. You know, uh, uh, people say that, uh, but um, but again, you know, they men of principle. You know, uh, uh, look what you know, Dan Gurney, I think, was also like that, where he, he you know he felt that he should have a, an American brand, American car compete on the international market and i think uh um you know from that standpoint he might have given up a world championship if if he would have been if he would have driven say with lotus or ferrari some of the more established teams you know so again but you have to admire that sort of that type of thinking and principle you know and uh and he he used with that basic the principle he just uh Uh, He he wanted to fly, uh, you know, the British flag uh, uh, on the international scene. Uh, You know, uh, that was probably more important to him than anything else.
0: And I suppose Mario Sterling must have had a particularly special feeling because he was so versatile, wasn't he? He won at, you know, he competed at Sebring, Le Mans, Formula One, uh, touring cars. And he pretty much won in everything he did, didn't he?
1: Well, that's the beauty. That's where, you know... That's where you have to appreciate uh, his ability. Uh, I've uh, One thing uh, that I think has always impressed me from the very beginning is uh, the versatility in any drivers. And that's what really, uh, I think, um, uh, gave me um, a lot of um, uh, yeah, something that I... That's who I wanted to emulate, mm. you know? I think it's always you always look at someone else that is doing something that really impresses you. So what if I could do the same, you know, and it drives you to just uh, up your game. And, uh, and again, I always felt that the ultimate satisfaction, you know, is to uh, just uh, venture over to another discipline, not just race, but win. And, uh, that that's what I derived potentially from my career. That's why I so fully understood, you know, what he, you know, what everything meant to him as well. I think he felt the same way, not race there, but win because, uh, you know, uh, even especially today, there's, um, basically drivers choose to just specialize, you know, in, in, in one, uh, category, you know, in one discipline, which is fine. You know, it's a, it's just strictly a personal thing, personal desire, but some of us just wanted to venture over somewhere else. And, uh, and I wouldn't change that part of my career. I think that's uh, part, the part that gave me the most satisfaction, quite honestly.
0: Can you remember making a conscious decision in your career, Maro, that you wanted to go and do Formula One after the success in NASCAR and winning at Indy? Was there a moment when you thought, oh, that, that might not be a bad option?
1: Oh, I uh, Formula One was always in my radar. Always. When I was driving midgets, you know, yeah. <laughs> I... I uh, uh, believe me, that uh, you know that's what uh, really sparked uh, my interest in motorsports, uh, you know, at the very beginning. And uh, and again, uh, I I can tell you this, uh, Greg, that uh, uh, even when I was a rookie at Indianapolis in '65, I finished third. And and of course, uh, you know, uh, all along we were there for a long time, and I I uh, I wanted to, uh, uh, you know, to. To get to know uh, Colin, I got to know Jimmy, and uh, and uh, when we were saying our goodbyes at the, at the dinner, after you know, Jimmy won and I finished third, um, I said to Colin, uh, Colin, someday I would like to do Formula One. This is 1965. And he said, Mario, he says, whenever you think you're ready, you call me and I will have a car for you. Can you imagine that, wow, wow. you know, the sound of those words to me? And
0: Colin Chapman as well, of all people.
1: Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I I was the happiest man alive at that moment, you know, but it gave me reason to just, uh, you know, to uh, get involved and venture more, more and more into road racing. And uh, I love road racing so much that even when I was driving midgets in 63, there was only one road race in Lime Rock, Connecticut, you know, that was run, and uh, I won that. In '65, there was only one road race throughout the championship, which I won the national championship that year, and um, and I won that road race. So you can see that, that was, you know, Formula One was uh, definitely in my, you know, in my in my future, hopefully. And um, you know, I, I felt at one point in my career things were really going well here. I didn't have to do that, but uh, I felt that I have to give it a hundred percent um, go and, uh, things worked out, you know, and, uh, and, and God willing, it was actually, you know, with Colin ultimately, you know, that's who, uh, gave me the championship.
0: And not only that, of course, but that first Grand Prix, when you took up Colin's offer, 1968 Watkins Glen, you actually took pole position, didn't you, on your debut?
1: Yes. I mean, uh, again, uh, I just wanted it so bad. And, um, and I felt, uh, I, I, had, uh, I think one week or two weeks before, um, I had a test in Monza, which was the first time, uh, ever in, in in the formula one. And I felt so at home, you know, uh, the response, uh, the, unnimble, nimble the, you know, the formula one cars versus, uh, you know, what I had driven up to the point, even mm-hmm. the single seaters, Indy cars were, you know, just, uh, heavier and all that. And, uh. And, uh, and so I, the Glen was my first uh, official uh, race. Uh, uh, you know, it's another story. Monza was supposed to be, but yeah. uh, I had to come back and race uh, in the in the States. And then uh, there was a 24-hour rule. That the last minute they waved at me, and so they won't let me start. But um, at the Glen, I had never seen the Glen before. I never raced there. But um, you know, the the car felt right to me. And, uh, and I was, you know, I put the car on the pole and Lord, me hole. next to me was Jackie Stewart. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, my teammate Graham Hill was behind me. So it was, it was really a uh, uh, fantastic feeling and gave me a lot of confidence. And so I had, you know, some tremendous moments, as you can imagine, in formula one, it was so meaningful, you know, like a, you know, winning, uh, the Italian Grand Prix, you know, that's again, that's, uh, that's when I saw my very first Formula One race in 54. Um, you know, so, so many wonderful things have happened in my career.
0: Obviously you have really known all the greats as well as becoming one of them. But like you just said, Jackie Stewart, Graham Hill, you got to know Bernie Ecclestone very well. Who did you always consider your best friends along with Sterling? Obviously.
1: Well, there were so many, as you could say, over the decades, uh, uh, you know, to deal with, uh, you know, uh, uh, with the giants of the sport, you know, even, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Ferrari dealing with him directly uh, and, and having such a great relationship with Colin Chapman. And and again, over the decades, racing against some of the icons of the sport. Uh, I mean, when I look back, uh, you know, uh, how fortunate have I been, you know, to at least, even be able to live through all those uh, decades uh, to have these opportunities, so I can just go on and on, name so many people, and that's why I always uh, I avoid just naming one or two yeah. because I know I'm going to forget some other key <laughs> one, key ones, you know. But uh, but uh, I've been around, I've um, I've touched, you know, you know, I've been touched by so many wonderful uh, individuals that um, and. That's always kept me so motivated and everything else.
0: And is there something, Mario, in your opinion about the real greats that does set them apart? I mean, is there anything they do have in common? It's difficult for someone like me to know really from the outside, but, you know, what makes them so special?
1: Well, I think it's, uh, I don't know how other people think, but uh, I think you have to be driven by pure love of driving and the, and the burning passion, you know, to be able to, to excel. Um, and, um, the way I looked at what I think made me a better driver is always, uh, uh, realize and recognizing that somebody is always better than you and you have to, uh, incessantly, you know, uh, improve your game, work harder. And, you know, if you're going to, you know, any discipline that you enter, like, you know, uh there were each almost each decade got somebody there that uh is the, the yardstick, you know, uh and uh sets a standard. And uh, and again, like you said earlier, uh who was setting the standard in Formula One, you know, when I was first introduced it was Jackie Stewart. And for some reason, you know, to do something one better than Jackie Stewart, oh my goodness, yeah. you know, uh how sweet it is. You know when uh, I won my first Formula One race. You know it was the same thing. I think Jackie Stewart finished second. A couple of weeks later, the uh, the uh, Grand Prix. There were uh, twin 100 milers. You know and uh, and I won both, and Jackie Stewart finished second to me twice in that. So and and then when I got into Indy cars, you know my rookie season and so forth. And uh, uh, who who was the man that you know, everyone wanted to be, it was A.J. Foyt. The first race that I won, that he finished second. I mean, is that something absolutely special? It's something that, uh, you feel, you know, uh, how sweet it is. You know, this is, uh, really, you feel that uh, you're accomplishing your most ambitious goals and, and that's what keeps you going. That keeps you motivated on and on, but that's how you look at things. And, um, uh, Again, I had those opportunities, uh, because I've been blessed to, I've been spared of, uh, of, uh, you know, potential injuries throughout, you know, I only, uh, in all my eight hundred and I think 76 races or something like that. Um, I only missed two of them because of injury. Now, how fortunate is that? Yeah. Do I know it? Absolutely. Do I appreciate it? Yes.
0: That's yeah, amazing. Count my blessings. Can you ever remember being scared? Can you ever remember a single moment, Mario, in your career where you were frightened of something? Not really. Uh,
1: I mean, it's uh, frightening in the sense, uh, you know, a couple of times uh, uh, I've had some uh, equipment failure. You know, a wheel come off uh, in Michigan where I had some injuries. And uh, I remember the one where the, the rear wing came off at Indianapolis, uh, they're driving an Eagle car, and... Uh, And I had a, it was probably the longest time I had to think uh, uh, before I uh, finally, you know, before I hit the Mm -hmm. wall. And I had nothing that I could do about it. And uh, I figured how much that, you know, I had enough time to think, oh, is this going to hurt? You know, at that point, obviously. But um, as far as um, uh, if you have a, a fear about, Uh, getting hurt or something like that, you're in the wrong business. You know, its uh, you have to put that aside. Uh, You know that there's there's a potential risk, but uh, if you're going to do it, you're going to, you know, you have to accept that. If you dwell on that, again, you better stay home and do something else.
0: Obviously, the reason we're chatting today is because of the tragic loss of Sir Sterling and the fear, the or the safety, should I say, the danger aspect of it was something Sterling always talked about, wasn't it? He insisted it should be dangerous. Do you see where he's coming from there? Do you agree with that? It wouldn't be quite the same, would it, if you didn't have that danger element there?
1: Well, uh, I agree that obviously, you know, that's the the part that uh, uh, you know that brings the challenges to the the forefront but uh, at the same time i don't think uh, uh no matter how much you deal you know uh you improve the safety aspect of a racing car it's never going to be 100 percent safe no question times uh, has uh, uh evolved uh we needed to deal with that safety i mean look how many drivers we were losing you know uh every year even in here in the united states in the the dirt track races, uh, you know, uh, one year we lost four guys in two accidents yes. and that two each, you know, things like that. So, um, uh, the sport had to do something in which they did. And, uh, I don't think the sport would have survived in modern times, you know, uh, if, uh, the safety aspect would not have been dealt with, uh, vigorously, um, because, uh, you know, as the sport became more and more commercial, uh, you know, I've said this many times, you know, that, uh, companies that spend millions of dollars to be proud, to be part of, uh, uh of a team and so forth, uh, uh, they don't want to go to funerals, you know, and, uh and again, uh, it's wonderful that today, uh, the drivers had the best, uh, opportunity ever, ever to retire on their own terms. And that's a beautiful thing. Uh, so, uh, again, uh, yes. The times that uh, we've endured, like even you know, with Sturdy when he was injured, obviously, uh, you know, today uh, he, he would have, you know, he would have been able to drive his entire career. He would have, or at least he would have, his career would have been, you know, expanded and and, and complete. Uh, so, um, uh, but the danger aspect is there today as well, you know. So, uh, but it's less, and thank goodness for that. It doesn't take anything away from the sport <laughs> or the challenges that the drivers face, believe me.
0: I can imagine some of the protests must have been quite ugly, weren't they, at the time with the race organizers? Because obviously there was money involved. Circuits were having to spend money to make these improvements. But yes, like you said, mean, we would have lost so many more people, wouldn't we?
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. Here's the thing. Uh, again, you know, as drivers, I remember, uh, why do you think the GPDA was formed? Yeah. Just for that just to be able to, uh, as, as drivers, we, uh, had to try to, uh, to have, uh, you know, the, some of the safety rules incorporated, like in the cars and so forth, uh, uh, where it would be across the board, because, um, uh, here again, I said it so many times that almost every safety feature on the car is a performance, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, has a performance effect, you know, and, uh, whether it's weight or whether it's aerodynamic or whatever, so it has to be enforced across the board. Um, and uh, and it took a while for us drivers to get the sanctioning bodies to start looking at this uh, vigorously, you know, for the sake of really uh, keeping the sport alive, not just us, but keeping the sport alive. And um, and again, you know, that uh, there were many individuals that uh, were uh, obviously. at the the forefront of this, um, and, 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 uh, it took a a while enough for all of this to happen, but, uh, finally I think that all the sanctioning bodies across the globe now are all very responsible and they're doing a fantastic job in, uh, in making this a work in progress. The safety, uh, should be continuous. Uh, and, um, and and again, uh, that's what will keep the sport alive uh, and, and on and on and popular forever. You know, we want the stars of today, the stars that, uh, that we're enjoying, we want them to keep racing uh, even after an incident. We want them to see racing the following week.
0: And just before we move on from this somber topic, Mario, is that one of the hardest things to be able to race on when you have lost someone so close to you? perhaps even on that same race weekend, that must be mentally very, very, very demanding, I would imagine. Well,
1: of course, of course. I mean, that's the dark side. There was always a dark side of our sport. I mean, uh, I look back, uh, many close friends that I lost, uh, teammates and so forth, uh, uh, that there's nothing worse than that. And uh, for a moment, you know, I get you thinking, you know, uh, uh, you know, will I be next type of thing, you know, but, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's natural to be thinking those terms, you know, but, uh, uh again, there was nothing worse than that. And, um, and like I said, fortunately, uh, a lot of that is behind us, you know, but, uh, but it was forever present, you know, especially in the decades that I, uh, I was active in, uh, especially the sixties and seventies, especially in, the 60s and 70s especially, and, I think in the 80s, things started getting much better, but still a long way to go. Because I look at my, even, you know, my the car that I drove, my very last IndyCar race, I look at the cockpit of that versus what, you know, we have today. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And I thought I was really in pretty good shape then. No, I wasn't.
0: Yeah, It's quite <laughs> scary, isn't it, know? when you see some of the um, footage from years gone by, of, you know just how high up the drivers were in the car and how, you know, the heads, the shoulders at times, well above the edges of the cockpit.
1: Greg, I, I look at some photos of the cars, uh, the sprint cars images that <laughs> I drove, you know, I'm not a big guy. My head was uh, one foot higher oh, than the robot. Wow, you wow. Know? So if I ever got upside down, you know, it was all over. Yeah. So uh, again, but, uh, you know, we never looked at those things, you know, and, uh, uh, I mean, the the first sports car that I drove for Luigi Canetti in 1966, was a Ferrari 330 LM, and the uh, and the roll bar the road bar was just a pop riveted on the aluminum behind me, you know, wow. and the seat belts were sewn on they were sewn on the cushion of the seat, you know? <laughs> wow. so they were just there because the rule was in place, but they obviously, you know, they were they, they were only there for show. And uh, and yet you get in there and you do it. And uh, but uh, uh, that's all we knew at the time. But again, it took a it took a long time and uh, and lost a lot of wonderful wonderful drivers along the way. You know that uh, you know careers were cut short, could have been future champions. You know, but that's uh, the sport. Uh, and you know suffered and endured those moments. So now we got. Hopefully, you know, as time evolved, we got we became a lot smarter. That's how this to it.
0: I suppose we should talk about the current champion as well as some of these past champions. Lewis is only seven race wins away now from equaling Michael Schumacher's 91. He's one title behind, isn't he? He's on six. Michael did seven. Just how good is Lewis Hamilton, Mario, when you rank him alongside people like, you know, the Mosses, the Stewarts, the Schumachers, the Andretti's, obviously, of this world?
1: Well, you know, that's. Basically, you look at his career, you know, it's, uh, uh, he's had, uh, you know, he's been driving winning equipment, capable of winning, you know, throughout his Formula One career, as far as I could see it, and he's made the best of it, you know, uh, the record speaks for itself, uh, he's made the right decisions, you know, which is, uh, which is, <laughs> you know, which is Alfonjo uh, did as well, yeah. he was very, very, Clever by doing that. I don't think Fonja was ever in a non-competitive car throughout his relatively short career, uh, and I think Lewis uh, has done the same thing. God bless him, and uh, and and he's made the best of it. He still does. Uh, he certainly uh, again you uh, can measure up, a, you know vis-a-vis uh, your teammate, and uh, and he's shown that uh, he holds his own. So you still have to. Uh, earn, you know, uh, these wins no matter what, uh, and he's done that. So uh, he rates uh, at the very top. And like I said, the record will will, will tell us the story. Uh, I never thought that Michael Schumacher would ever be a the record would ever be approached uh, in a win situation, and uh, and Lewis is still young enough and uh, and full of vigor. You know, to uh, to obviously go on and, uh, and, and and potentially smash that record. So uh, I like Lewis a lot. Uh, uh, love his attitude, and uh, and again, you know, he uh, he definitely is making uh, uh, Britain proud in in every way, and uh, and he should be proud of himself, of course.
0: And I can't say I really know Lewis Mario, but. What I think I do know is that he's clearly made a lot of sacrifices over the years, hasn't he? Whether it's relationships or, you know, he cut the professional ties with his father at one point to continue with his career and better his career. Leaving McLaren must have been a very big decision for him at the time. I guess there's an amount of, of bravery, isn't there, in these decisions you have to make off the track as well as on the track?
1: Oh, of course. Like I said, that um, I think uh, even... You know, when he uh, made a decision to leave McLaren for Mercedes, uh, I, I, in my own way, I said, "What? What in the world has you been drinking?" You know, and uh, and uh, and he can thank uh, the way I understand. He can thank Nicky Lauda for that, uh, and uh, he made the brilliant decision at that point. Uh, so you know, good for him. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, could have gone the other way. Uh, I I look back at uh, my career when I came out of uh, lotus at the time and uh and i uh i could have gone just as easy could i was invited to go to mclaren and my heart took me to alfa romeo you know that was a mistake if i would have gone to mclaren i think i would have probably for sure not probably you know uh, had better results uh, and uh but you know it's it's about making the, the you know the right decision at the right time and uh and he hasn't moved around very much, as you can see, in his career. But again, at the key point, he just made the right decision again. And, uh, and here it is. He's enjoying, you know, the, probably the greatest moments uh, of his life.
0: We should have a quick chat, I think, about Bernie Ecclestone as well, because he's not around quite so much as he used to be. But he's never far away, is he, Bernie? And he's got, he's got a great birthday coming up, a 90th birthday this October. What a guy. Again, I've never met Bernie, Mario, but you know him pretty well. Um, how does, with all respect, a son of a Grimsby trawlerman in England become a multi-billionaire, not millionaire, but billionaire businessman? You've got to be a pretty special individual, surely, haven't you, to do that?
1: Well, absolutely, indeed. I mean, you could see that uh, just... Uh... You know, just following his career in Formula One, I remember, you know, from way back, uh, I think it was somewhere around 72 when he, you know, had bought Brabham and all that. And uh, uh, he was, as a team owner, he was successful, but also he could see himself as a businessman, the possibilities of Formula One being, uh, you know, a global sport the way uh, it, you know, the way it was. Uh, and then uh, seeing having the foresight of uh of uh seizing you know the world t v rights and all that is what brought them to a totally different dimension and, um, and again he became wealthy himself but uh, he made formula one he brought wealth to formula one that was they could only dream about you know before the nineties and uh and again uh give him credit uh by dealing with governments and uh having Taj Mahal uh, built all over the, you know, all over the world, you know, that uh, uh, something to totally be proud of. It seemed like every circuit around the world is uh, uh, is, is sort of a, uh, a, a beautiful sight, something that, um, you know, the country themselves are proud of, uh, you know, and, uh, and like I say, we can definitely call them Taj Mahal. Yes. So, um you know, again, it just he raised uh, the level of Formula One to the, to the point that only probably he could do. So you can never take that away from him.
0: Seems as well, doesn't it, that many of these really successful people are genuinely nice people as well. When you see interviews on the television or in magazines, newspapers with sports stars or really successful entrepreneurs, the vast majority of them do seem like very nice people as well.
1: Well, I like to think so. Yeah. Because, uh, they have a degree of intellect, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, uh, they, uh, they, they remain, uh, in, in so many ways, uh, there's a degree of modesty there, you know, at least the way they present themselves and, uh, and they have appreciation for friendships and, uh, and, you know, I think that's, that's a great quality for an individual at that level. Uh uh, on a personal level I've uh I've always uh you know I had a, a great conversations with uh, with uh, Bernie uh, I, I stay in touch with him uh, periodically just uh, uh was uh called him in he was in Brazil and uh said uh, give me give me an opinion what this pandemic what this He always has an opinion about something and <laughs> I love to hear it <laughs> I always love I to hear his side yeah. Yeah, so because he always has somewhere along the line, he always seems to have an answer, right or wrong. He seems to have an answer, so I I always um, had a great time. Just uh, every chat I had with him just uh, think uh, uh, brings something uh, uh, interesting to you know to to the forefront and um, and he's a man of great qualities for sure
0: and without diverging too much of your private conversation with bernie mario what is his general opinion on the pandemic because i'm sure if he was still heading up f1 he'd be doing as much as he possibly could would need to get this show on the road again as ross braun and co are doing now
1: well you have to have a plan you know and uh you know there is a plan in place i like uh you know even on the indycar scene uh I love the fact that um, uh, Roger Penske yeah. uh, is in charge now. You know, he's the man, and uh, he's the man that will always have a plan. They have a plan to start the the series, uh, you know, at the beginning of July. And, uh, you know, something, uh, I hope it happens. Uh, and but But you have to have a plan, and if you have to move it, you know, so be it. You know, you have to be reasonable. But at the same time, gotta have a plan and I like the way even, uh, you know, on the formula one front, the way they're thinking about, um, obviously, uh, they have to make some changes along the way. Uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, to try to slide in as many races as possible consecutively and maybe shorten, uh, the burden on, the on the teams and everything else, but having maybe just a two race, uh, weekend, uh, things like that. So, um, uh, but, uh, again, uh, you have to have a plan. This thing, uh, sooner or later, it's got to break, you know, and we have to be ready to go. Uh, I think everybody's they're jumping at the bit and, um, and I think, uh, there's going to be a lot of energy that, that we're going to have to, uh, you know, yes. get rid of. So there's, uh, you know, to, you know, once, once we get going. So, um, uh, again, everybody's, I'm sure is a, very anxious. I certainly
0: know I am. Me too. I think we've all realized as well that although sport isn't number one on the agenda right now, it's health and safety, of course, but we do need some sport to keep us all going. Don't we? I think we've all realized how much our lives revolve around it. um, Not just on a professional level, but a personal level as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no question about it. Uh, Again, I could, uh, um, you know, we're all, so, you know, situation like this, you know, depressing at best. Mm. Uh, you know, we, uh, like I said, we can hardly wait to see some light at the end of the tunnel to see things, uh, uh you know, that, that, looks like they're improving. So to give us hope and, uh, we have to, you know, on that front, we have to remain positive, you know, and, uh, it's as difficult as it is, but, uh, that has to be the mindset. And, um, and again, just, uh, uh, be ready to go you know as soon as uh they uh, take the leash away from us
0: Do you enjoy the modern day formula one mario it's obviously changed a lot hasn't it in recent years there's more changes coming again um obviously the changes have been delayed now haven't they by another year because of this situation but do you still enjoy the racing and the spectacle as you did before
1: absolutely absolutely i enjoy it i uh i love technology you know and then and, and also the way it is controlled uh not to give the the driver, you know, too too many tools to uh, to work with. It's still, you know, there's so much, uh, you know, what should be in the hands of the driver. And uh, and again, uh, you yeah, know, it's still pure sport. And uh, and I love it. Uh, I uh, I just uh, I mean, my my bucket list is still to 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 get in the you know in the latest Formula One and just get a feel for that you know, so i still have that in my yeah. in my blood so yeah uh, my
0: passion is alive and well that wouldn't be bad would it a few laps around spa or somewhere like that with one of the modern day cars
1: yes sir bring it on
0: <laughs> are you still having plans to do the IndyCar uh, demonstration laps because there's some great videos on youtube of people's reactions in the two-seater when you drive them around at over 200 miles an hour the reactions when they get out are fantastic
1: yeah yeah i'm still on i was uh just I was there ready to uh, to go and Pete, uh, you know, the weekend when the first race was canceled. And uh, I was there on a Thursday. There were like 40 people and press and everything uh-huh. else ready to go. Our cars were all in line. I was, uh, my helmet was all ready. I just, uh, uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, everything fell apart. But, uh, uh, and then I'm ready to go as soon as uh, they say, you know. It's, it's, uh, it's time. So uh, that's why, you know, I'm as anxious as anyone, you know, to get things going.
0: Well, we look forward to that, Mario. And uh, if any Formula One team bosses are listening in, give Mario Andretti a run in your car because <laughs> that would be a great spectacle. <laughs> but before we head off, Mario, obviously we, we did start with Sir Sterling, so I think we should end with Sir Sterling. What a great character sport in general has lost and Sir Sterling Moss, that name, is a name known by everybody, isn't it? It's not just Formula One fans, not just motor racing fans. Everybody knows Sterling Moss.
1: Absolutely. Bigger than life. And uh, and for us to have had uh, the opportunity to know him and meet him, we're that much richer uh, because of that. And, and again, is uh, an individual that uh, will never, ever be forgotten.
0: And I think it's fair to say, by the sounds of what you've mentioned in the interview here today, a lot of what Mario Andretti achieved and became is thanks to Sterling Moss.
1: Indeed. Yeah, that's right. They, uh, you have to have had always somebody to show the way and, and inspire you. And uh, he was one of those, for sure, that inspired me. Absolutely.
0: Mario, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure again. Um, all thoughts, of course, with Sir Sterling's friends and family. And hopefully, Mario, we won't leave it this time for... Uh, eight years before our next conversation.
1: Anytime, Greg, anytime at all. And it's a real pleasure speaking with you again.
0: Well, I have to say it was an absolute pleasure to chat again with Mario Andretti. What a lovely, lovely man he is. What a great philosophy on racing and on life in general, of course, as we remembered the legend that was Sir Sterling Moss, who passed away on Easter Sunday at the age of ninety. Well, Full Throttle will be back very soon indeed. And this time we'll be chatting away with Mick Grant, the seven-time Isle of Man TT winner, about a fellow seven-time Isle of Man TT winner, the late, great Tony Rutter, who we sadly also lost earlier this year. So Mick Grant on the next episode. But for now, many thanks to Mario Andretti and many thanks to you from myself, Greg Haynes. We'll be back soon for the Eurosport Full Throttle podcast.